Welcome to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast, a podcast about being gay and sober and not just on Sundays. In this podcast, we'll explore the ins and outs of being queer and sober in a world where drinking and using are woven into the fabric of our culture. This season, we'll be hearing the stories of addiction and recovery from sober gays from all over the world. Every story of recovery is unique in its own way, and every story deserves to be heard. So let's go. Hello, and welcome to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast. I'm your host, Dave. As of the recording of this podcast, I have three years of continuous sobriety. Today is a very special day. Today, we welcome our first guest. Today, we welcome to the pod, Frankie Consolo. Frankie is a self-proclaimed geek slash nerd that is as awkward in real life as he is boisterous. He is a reformed ex-con who went from selling drugs to selling rugs. He is just on a personal journey to love himself a little more and fear others a little less, one day at a time. Sans chemicals. Please welcome Frankie. Hi, Frankie, and welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Okay, so why don't you start off by telling me your name, your preferred pronouns, and a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, my name is Frankie. I am 38 years old uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. Well, North Shore, Massachusetts, Peabody. Um, and my preferred pronouns are he, him, his. Um, I work as a store manager for a retail cup carpet and rug store in Back Bay, Boston. Fantastic. So why don't you walk us through your journey of sobriety? How did it start and what brought you to where you are now? So um, I, I think uh, from my experience of what I know of other addicts and alcoholics, I, I kind of started late. Um, I grew up in a single parent home. My father died when I was young. My mother uh, was working all of the time, and my brother um, is also someone who suffers with addiction. He is an alcoholic. And so growing up, um, he would often get drunk and violent, and his violent attacks would you know, often be targeted at me. And I swore that I was never going to be like him. I wasn't going to go down that path. And I didn't. I was way worse. I went down a different but similar path. Um, I think because my mother was so worn out from all of his shenanigans, the fact that I wasn't, you know, like lighting fires at school or beating anybody up, she just kind of like, she was like, oh, he's good. He's fine. It wasn't that she didn't love me, but there wasn't a lot of parenting going on. But I did go, I made it all through elementary school, middle school. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school that I tried anything. And it it started off with, um, before a substance, I was addicted to sex, really. Yeah, the internet was new, because I'm that old. And um, I... I went into an AOL chat room and I met some people in Wakefield, Massachusetts. And uh, they invited me over for my first ever foursome at 17 years old. And they were doing something called Tina. And I was actually young and naive enough to not know what that was at the time. Um, I knew it was a drug. So it wasn't like I went in complete blind. I, I knew I was trying something that, you know, wasn't kosher um by family standards and um 
you know, from the moment that quote unquote Tina hit my tongue, I was in love. Like my head went quiet. All of like these insecurities and fears went away. And like, I, I felt incredible. And we, I mean, we had fun that night. I mean, I was 17 years old and it was three adult men and I enjoyed myself. Um, and it was like later in the night after we'd had some fun, they were like, so what do you think of crystal meth? And I was like, what? And, but like this, the seed had been planted. I loved it. I knew I loved it. And that really started uh, the next 20 years of my life, uh, this ongoing pattern, because I did. I loved the way it made me feel. It made me feel su superhuman. It made me feel exciting. It made me feel cool. So, like, before I ever tried a cigarette or alcohol or, you know, weed even, I had smoked crystal meth. And so I always think of it as I dove into the deep end of the pool and I swam. And so everything else from there, like... I tried everything. I loved everything. Crystal meth was my first and primary love. And I always came back to it. You know, and the other thing with crystal meth diving into the deep end of the pool is, you know, you realize pretty early on that it's problematic. Like, mm -hmm. I, I never really had the chance to be in denial about it and say there wasn't a problem. Because, like, from the word go, I was failing classes my uh, third semester of senior year. And, like... I was able to bring my grades back up and graduate, but like that was the start of my pattern where I would fuck everything up, burn it all down to the ground with meth and be like, no, 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 this is fine. Pick it all up. Everything would, I would move forward and then I would get bored and I would start that thing all over again. And that, that happened for the next 20 years. Like high school was the first place, but then I would get a job. I would get bored. I would get too used to it. And I would, you know, start using, lose the job get kicked out of where I was living. And so like, it was just that and that on repeat. So I never was able to deny that I had a problem. I knew I had a problem. So I started going to get help fairly early. And so like, I, if I started using in 2003, I started looking for help in 2005. So it was like, it was very quickly. And so like, I would see therapists and I would do treatment facilities and I would, you know, mostly to placate my family. And yeah. um, I, I knew things were wrong, but I, I, I didn't really want to stop. I enjoyed it. And I was like, it's a problem, but it's only a problem when I let it be. Around 2008, uh, I had a friend, because through crystal meth use, I contracted HIV. And I went to an HIV support group. And um, I met a friend, and we got close, and he was great. But his husband was uh, an alcoholic. And he started going to AA meetings in Boston. And so it was my friend who suggested that I reach out to his husband and maybe start, you know, going to meetings for support. And so I started going to Gay AA in 2008. And Gay AA in Boston is, you know, it's AA, it's Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's, um, it's more open-minded because it's, you know, LGBTQIA focused. And so the people who go to those meetings are more open-minded. I've definitely been to AA meetings where if you discuss drugs at all, they'll shut off the lights. They won't let you talk. But uh, Interesting. That's great. I never heard that. Wow. Yeah. But gay AA, from my experience, has never been like that. They always kind of knew that there was like a co-infected dilemma 
And so I um I started going there and I went there for God, 2008, 2016. So I was in there for eight years and I never got consistently sober. Um, the longest time I had was about 18 months. And then the pattern started over again. And then it was like two months, three months, four months. And I would just keep falling back out. And like uh, my friends in the in program in AA kind of got used to me being a chronic relapser. And they like they almost expected it from me like, oh, did you hit your wits end? So in 2016, after being like the chronic relapser and sort of feeling like not only was I a disappointment to my family, I was a disappointment to my recovery community. My mother got diagnosed with breast cancer. And that was like the thing that sort of pushed me over the edge. And I no longer wanted to try to fix anything. I kind of just was like, fuck meetings, fuck therapy. So I, I made a choice and I, I told all my friends that I was going to look for something different and I left AA. And so when you leave AA, it's, it's bittersweet because like, mm -hmm. there's a real community there. There's, you know, a lot of support and love, but if you're not in meetings, they don't see you. And yeah. so it's not out of sight, out of mind as much as like, their lives go on as they should. And like your life goes on and they're not constantly connected. And so I lost touch with that community and I started using every day and it was primarily crystal meth, but really all substances. I was mostly smoking it, but I ended up shooting it, doing um, IV. And uh, that went on for four years. And after four years, I was unemployable. My family was sick of me. My mother had died while I was like this. I was homeless. I was living in storage units or sleeping with men around Massachusetts and Rhode Island to, you know, use their shower or see if they had anything spare to eat in their kitchen. Cause like I had no money and I was basically trading sex for drugs. And after that got old, I started selling crystal meth. And that was kind of the beginning of the end because I was the worst dealer ever. Oh, no. uh, I solicited sex from a person on Facebook and uh -huh. um, I offered to suck their dick and smoke them up. And turns out it was an undercover police officer. Um, wow. He was a stranger. He was just a random person. And I was high and stupid enough to message and ask him if he wanted to do this. And that was sort of like my little like high off my ass kink or fetish. And it really bit me in the ass because he set me up for four hand to hand sales of methamphetamine. So I'm a four time felon in 2021, maybe no 2020. Um, the police in Salem, Massachusetts raided the apartment that I was living in and paying for with drug money. They kicked in the door, they tore everything apart and they arrested me. I was in a bright red nasty pig jockstrap and I was eating cinnamon toast crunch and they yelled at me to put it on the floor and I did. They kicked out the gentleman that I was, you know, hanging with. Yep. The bud as it were. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, they put me in handcuffs and even though I said, I'm gay, I can't go to jail. They didn't care. They... They brought me to Salem uh, police station and I slept there from a Thursday to a Monday 
on Monday, I was arraigned in Salem court. And then I was in Middleton jail by that night. And I stayed there for six months. And I'm, I'm actually kind of lucky. A lot of people await trial for like years and mine yeah. moved along pretty quickly. And I made a plea deal and I, you know, pled guilty. And cause I mean, they had video of me doing these deals. So it's not like I could say it wasn't me. Yeah. And so I spent six months in the correctional facility and then six months in a sober house that they, they connected me with the jail connected me with, with an ankle bracelet on. And I got my uh, fresh out of jail job at target in Dorchester in a parking lot that I used to sell drugs in. So I would yeah. often see former customers or business associates. And I was miserable for the six months that I was working there and had that ankle bracelet on and I hated my life and I thought it was all over. And not once did I think I'm going to get better. I'm going to get help. I'm going to change. Mm -hmm. Six months happened went by and they took off the ankle bracelet and I was still on probation. And I knew the second that was off and I didn't have to pee in a cup in front of a cop, I was going to get high. And I did. I immediately ran to this gentleman that I had been in love with uh, for the last four years of my life. And we got high in Rhode Island. And I went on like a two week binge where I got fired from Target, I got kicked out of my sober house, and in order to avoid going back to jail, because I had two years of suspended time over my head, I went to treatment. And treatment was uh, a facility in Worcester, Massachusetts, called Passages. It's not Passages in Malibu. It was, <laughs> it was the most horrendous place I've ever been. I think I would have preferred to have been in jail. There were mice everywhere. There was no real treatment. COVID was running rampant. So they would yell at you and like restrict you to your room. So you couldn't leave like a little six by six bedroom. It was worse than jail, but it was, it was in this facility that I, the light kind of hit me where I realized I needed to make a change. I was sitting with a couple of other people during what was supposed to be a treatment period, but really they just threw coloring books at us and told us to, you know, work on ourselves. And we were sitting there and we were talking about how much we hated this place. And, you know, they went back and forth about how they had been to different facilities all around the state. And he liked this one facility because they let you go outside and smoke. And she liked this facility over here because they had the best food. And he liked when he got to go to the pre-release program after jail in this county because they had the best COs. And, like, they just kept going back and forth. And that's where it kind of, like, struck me that, you know, the past 20 years of my life have been me repeating the same pattern. And now I've hit a point in this pattern where it's going to be facility, facility, jail, 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 facility, facility. And I was like, holy fuck, no. Yeah. No, I don't want this to be it. And so I made the decision to seek out real help and like make genuine changes in my life. Thank you for tuning in to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast. Please feel free to like, subscribe, share, and comment. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at SoberGaySunday. You can also email me directly at SoberGaySunday at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay sober, guys. I'm so sick of small talk and tell me something jar-topping in me on my head with your biggest mistakes. I don't want your daily drama, fill me in on family trees.